You're listening to the Higher Ed Marketing Lab. I'm your host, Jarrett Smith. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Higher Ed Marketing Lab. I'm Jarrett Smith. As always, it's my job to engage with the brightest minds in higher ed and the broader world of marketing to bring you actionable insights you can use to level up your school's marketing and enrollment efforts. In this episode, we'll be talking with Susan Beyer. Susan is the owner of Audience Audit, a marketing research firm specializing in custom attitudinal segmentation research. If you haven't encountered this type of research before, the level of insight it can produce is really eye-opening. We start off by defining attitudinal segmentation and what makes it unique, and then we jump into some specific examples of how schools have used attitudinal segmentation to improve their marketing and enrollment activities. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Susan Beyer. Susan, welcome to the show. Oh, Jarrett, thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here, and I'm looking forward to digging into this conversation a lot. So um, Susan, before we get started, I wonder if you could just take a minute to tell everybody a little bit about your background. So, I mean, uh, fundamentally, I think of myself as a marketing strategist. That's what I've been doing for 30 odd years, both on the client side and on the agency side of things. Um, and when I started Audience Audit almost 10 years ago now, it was it was really to try to bring something to marketing strategy that I that I felt was lacking, which is actual information, like real real data instead of just gut that I think a lot of us, you know, rely on. And and um, a talented gut is a good thing, but I'm a big fan of actually having some information to, to guide you. So um, you know, for the last 10 years I've been sort of doing this combination of marketing strategy and um custom research to help folks really understand who they're talking to and what's driving those people in their audience um, mm-hmm. that, that they can apply from a strategic standpoint and, and, and decide how to, you know, how to put their best foot forward. So Susan, you do a particular type of research. Um, and uh, I was kind of hoping we could maybe start out by defining that this attitudinal audience segmentation. Right. So the work we do is, um, is quantitative research. So it's not, you know, focus groups, um, interviews, those kinds of things that are more, that are more qualitative with smaller numbers of, of people. Um, the work we do is um, all online survey research involving large numbers of respondents so that we get statistically reliable data. So that's number one. It's a, it's a quantitative um, assessment so that you can sort of, you know, your ship of state with some with some confidence. Um, it's segmentation research, which a lot of people are familiar with segmentation, you know, to some extent, especially, you know, with the advent of, um, you know, content marketing and customer relationship, you know, management, CRM kind of, kind of things, basically dividing your audience up into groups. What people really um, aren't familiar with often is is the approach we take, which is to divide those people up attitudinally or those clients or prospects up attitudinally. So instead of dividing people into groups by their age or their gender or the size of their organization or the industry that they're in, our research really focuses on grouping folks by the attitudes that they hold about something in particular. 
Um, so, you know, all of our research is custom. So every project is different and we do it for a lot of different industries. But fundamentally, what we want to try to understand is, you know, what are the groups in the audience that you're trying to reach that are really different from each other in terms of how they look at your category, how they look at their own level of expertise and confidence in making decisions in that category, what their priorities are in terms of why they're looking for help uh, in a particular area, who's influencing that decision, where they're getting information, all of those kinds of things sort of come into play. Um, and of course, we look at things like age and company size and all those kinds of things. But, but really, what we see looking at people by age and income really doesn't tell the story about why they're in the market for something and how they're going to make that choice. You know, you can line a bunch of people up who look just like me, same age, income, education, where we live, family, all that kind of stuff. But we're all going to choose something, something different for vacation because what we want out of a vacation is different. And you can't see that on paper. You know, you, that doesn't show up in your demographics. So you really need to dig deeper into the attitudes surrounding these kinds of decisions. And, and what you end up seeing are very different kinds of people grouped together um, and different from, you know, folks, folks in another group in that same audience. So you start to get a deeper understanding of uh, who you're talking to and, and, and what you need to do to serve the needs that they have. Yeah. Yeah. You know, having seen some of the research that you've done specifically for higher ed, it was interesting to me how even people that are interested in the same exact, say, type of degree um, could have very different motivations for doing that. And, uh, you know, maybe if it's like a technology degree, they might be, you know, one type of student might be really focused on their long-term career prospects. Another one might be really focused on entrepreneurship. Another one might just be really consumed with the research and kind of pushing the boundaries of what's prop, you know, possible or solving some problems. But it's, if you just were to look at what their degree interest was alone, that, that really doesn't tell the story of what they're trying to do. No, and it, and it also, you know, often sheds light on the folks that you can anticipate you're not going to do a very good job of serving, right? Because they're there for something you don't do very well or something you don't want to do, um, or they're just going to, they're not going to be worth the effort, <laughs> you know, that you're going to put into them. Um, and so, you know, as, as much as it, shows you sort of who's out there and how to um, how to speak to them in a relevant way, right, to get their interests and then to fulfill their, their needs, you can also sort of spot potential issues ahead of time and decide whether that's um, a part of the audience that you really, that you really want to try to acquire and spend money against or not. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up that it's not just about you know, figuring out who do you want to talk to and what are the best things you can say to them, but also who's not, for lack of a better sort of phrase, who's not worth your time or who, who is going to be harder to please um, yeah. than somebody else. So you don't, you don't waste your limited time and resources with folks who, who maybe, you know, from a higher ed perspective are going to show up at the institution and ultimately be disappointed. Yeah. And then tell everyone they know about that, right? That's the, that's the backlash from serving the wrong audience 
it's just not going to end well. It's, it's not going to work well for you or for them. And then, you know, your word of mouth um, is, is not great coming from those folks. And, and you know, we, we all know um, the extent to which uh, organizations are influenced by the word of mouth about them. You know, that's, that's what we rely on to make decisions a lot of the time. So, yeah, so some, some folks it's just better to avoid. avoid. And that doesn't always happen. But um, when it does, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. And, you know, inevitably we do these studies, and I don't know how many we've done. And, in, in, you know, we do a lot of higher ed, but we do a lot of other categories too. And I can probably count on one hand the number of studies where we saw really um, significant differences in demographics between the groups. Most of the time, it doesn't matter. Like those, that's not what's that's not what's going on. It's something different. So, and you know, I mean, higher ed is no different than any other organization in that we all have our own ideas about who's going to love us, right? We we all have our own ideas about who our audiences is are and and what they're going to care about. Um, and while we're usually partially right, we're rarely perfectly right. I think it might be helpful if we, you know, kind of dive into some real world examples of how maybe this kind of research has been used to, to show something unexpected. You know, it, it's just been fascinating over the years. And, and I, I have some examples that I can talk about. Um, I won't use the name of the institutions, but I do have their permission to sort of talk about what, what we found. I did a study and it was a number of years ago for a faith-based university in the Midwest. and. This is a Christian university, private school. Um, they've really done a tremendous amount of work to provide learning across a range of platforms. So online and uh, satellite learning centers and a sort of traditional undergraduate campus. And, you know, um, they, they were just they were doing a really good job from that from that standpoint. And and um, wanted to sort of understand their audience better. So so we looked at both. Um, current students, as well as prospective students, um, and sort of went at this from an attitudinal standpoint. And one of the things that, you know, came out of the study, which they fully expected to see, was there was a, a, a group there that was really there because it was a faith-based school. That was really important for them, right? And so their consideration set was other schools that also had a strong sort of faith-based element like this school. That's who they were being compared to uh, in that population. But interestingly, we found a, a sizable group, almost, I think it was almost 28% or so of their um, current students, in addition to a sizable percentage of their pr prospective students, who were um, either there or considering the school, despite the fact that it was a faith-based institution. There were other, yeah. There were other things about the school that were so appealing to them, whether it was um, proximity to home or actually being far away from home or um, the academic credentials or, you know, some of these other things that they were actually um, matriculating at the school or strongly considering it despite the fact that it was a faith-based institution. And that really surprised some of the people at the, at the client side, you know. Um, there were kids who were there because they wanted a really traditional undergraduate 
social experience, right? They wanted to live in a dorm or in a sorority or fraternity. They wanted to eat in the, um, you know, the chow hall. They wanted to participate in sort of the campus social experience, you know? And so when you, when you look at groups like this that are really driven by something different, um, the, the, the question then becomes from a marketing standpoint, what do you do with that information? And to this school's credit, they just went after it. I was so impressed with what they did. So for example, one of the first things they did was take what had been a one size fits all campus tour experience and break it up into different things. So for example, if you were one of these people who was really interested in the faith-based aspects of the school, you could choose a tour that really highlighted sort of that aspect of, of being a student there and visited the chapel and learned about a lot of the faith-based group on campus and all of that kind of stuff. You could choose that as your tour, but you could also choose a tour that really just focused on sort of campus life and the dorms and the eating halls and the, you know, all of that kind of stuff if you didn't want that. And then there was a tour where you actually didn't start by running around the campus. You start um, in a in a lecture hall where you get to hear from professors and deans and stuff about the academic excellence of the school and the, you know, sort of how it's viewed by employers and, and some of that kind of stuff. So the first thing they did, and, and, you know, this is, this is really where marketing where this kind of information um, it, it becomes so different is they basically said, you choose. Right. You choose what kind. Well, how can we how can we give you the information you want? And it was terrifically successful. Like people could choose, you know, to do one of these tours or a couple of them. But they were but they were really positioned as, you know, we know there are a lot of students here who really are interested in this or a lot of prospects who have questions about this. Choose the tour that makes the most um, sense for you. Um, the other thing that was really interesting about that study was the school from a messaging standpoint was really saying something along the lines of, you know, we're, we're, we're like 10 schools in one or, you know, five schools in one, right? We have a graduate program, we have satellite, we have uh, a traditional campus, we have a night program, you know, all, all of these, um, all of these things all sort of bundled up in one. And you know, we tested messaging for the school in the study with these audiences. And one of the things that was really, I think, telling, and, we've, and I've seen in, in a number of other studies since, is that while that kind of positioning is a tremendous rallying cry internally, I mean, and, you know, they're rightly proud of all the work they've done with respect to that. You know, they are really broadening access to education. Um, for their audiences. And so it's, it's, it's something they're really proud of, but it doesn't mean anything to their audiences because nobody wants all those schools, right? Everybody wants the one that they want. And the more you talk about how you do a lot of different things, the more these audience members are like, uh, but is it really focused on what's important to me? Uh, and in this school's case, it, it just wasn't relevant. It was falling flat. And unfortunately, you know, that's the message that they were spending a lot of their resources on. Um, when there were other things they could have been doing with that time and that money and that real estate from an advertising standpoint that would have had a bigger impact. 
So, um, so that was a really, that was a really interesting study to do. Well, and I think it's so, so important and relevant to higher ed because I mean, higher ed is, is essentially an enterprise organization that's running on a budget. So you just don't, it is not possible to truly be all things to all people and be good at it. And you shouldn't be saying that. Um, so I, I know you've also done some work on the advancement side and, um, you know, without, without naming yeah. specifics, but I, I'd love to dig into yeah. that because, uh, I think that that also submits some interesting work. The study I think you're talking about was, was one for a, a very well-respected, uh, private, uh, institution in the Northeast, um, with a terrific reputation, um, that was interested. They basically brought us on because they wanted to create a new event for alumni with an eye, obviously, with, to their advancement goals, um, but really trying to drive engagement uh, among alumni, which is the first step, right, of getting alumni to become donors and sort of, you know, interviewing potential undergraduates and all of that kind of stuff that alumni can do for a school. Um, so they wanted to create a new event. And before they did that, they decided to take a look at what their alumni audience looked like. And that was just a fascinating study because we found alumni who were engaging with the school really because they just treasured their time there and felt it was so, you know, uh, formative on the rest of their lives. So they're wearing the sweatshirts on the weekend and they're going to the football games and uh, homecoming and all of those kinds of things because it just reminds them of a really, of a really wonderful time in their lives. Um, But we also found alumni who were really, continuing to engage with the school because of the business opportunities that that offered them, the alumni network, et cetera. So these folks might go to the football game, but it's not because they care about the football team. It's because they're hoping to sit next to somebody that might be a potential business contact for them, right? Uh, Which is fine. It's a perfectly reasonable, um, you know, uh, reason to stay engaged with your school, right? It's a big selling point for schools, their alumni network and all that kind of stuff. And there are folks that really that's the primary reason that they continue engaging. Um, but then we found this group for this particular school, which I was, I was just fascinated by. These folks are, are very um, successful and well-respected in their careers. And their impetus for staying engaged with the school was that they want to bring that expertise to bear for the school's benefit, right? Um, they really want to provide advice based on what they know that they think will help the school continue to be successful and grow in the future. Um, and, and I, you know, I was just fascinated by these folks and, and the school was too, and decided to, make this event not an all-in-one event, but an event specifically focused on these people, that third group, right? So what was, what was fascinating about it was that with the help of, you know, their agency, they developed this event specifically marketed, and it was basically, the messaging about it was, you know, imagine the impact you can have on the school, Right. So they got these folks to come for a weekend. They all paid to come. It was a couple hundred dollars or whatever. But all of the content was specifically for these types of folks. So, for example, um, one of the keynote events of the weekend was a sneak peek at the the five-year plan for the school that was then in development 
followed by like a cocktail party kind of thing where you could rub shoulders with the leadership of the school and let them know what you thought about the five-year plan and what you might have to contribute and all that kind of stuff. Well, they got, I mean, so they could have said, well, let's do an event that tries to get everybody. But instead they said, let's do an event just for this particular segment in this case. Um, They got like twice as many um, registrations their first year as they had hoped to get. Uh, Reviews of the event were off the charts. 85% of the people who attended the first year attended the next year. Um, And giving was up over 20% among the people who had attended the event than it was among the alumni who hadn't the subsequent year. Wow. Wow. Um, That's such a great, great case study. I mean, they did a great job with it, right? But, but they have some discipline and said, you know, instead of trying to make an event that's three days in which every single segment is going to find something, but they're also going to have to weigh, is it worth it to spend this for three days when about 30% of the content seems like something I'd be interested in? Or should they, should they build something that is just segment specific? And that's really, you know, you can do both things. And you can do both things well. This is just a great example of a school that decided, you know what, we're going to target this particular group. We understand them very well. We're going to build an event specifically around what they are interested in. And it was just hugely successful for them. So that was fun. That was, a, that was you know, that was neat to see that uh, unfold for sure. Susan, I want to be respectful of your time. I know I've, I've occupied a lot of it this morning. So, well, I think uh, I've been talking more you. than you have. So. <laughs> Well, that's then, then I feel like I've done my job as an interviewer. That's good. (laughs) But uh, Susan, if if folks have uh, more questions or want to find out more, what's the the best place to reach out to you, get, get in contact with you? Yeah. So you can check out, there's a lot of information on the website. It's audienceaudit.com. But you can also just email me, which is Susan at audienceaudit.com or find me on uh, Facebook, I have to say I'm, I'm a woeful Twitter person, but Facebook's a good place to find me. Or uh, My number's on the website, too, and you can give me a call that way. I love to talk to folks about the opportunities for research in their organization and the extent to which our approach might be helpful. So uh, happy to chat with anybody at any time. As you can tell, I love, I love to talk about my yep. work. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, Susan, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and, and your perspective and uh, look forward to catching up with you soon. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jared. I appreciate it. The Higher Ed Marketing Lab is produced by Echo Delta, a full-service marketing firm dedicated to helping higher education institutions drive enrollment, increase yield, and capture donors' attention. For more information, visit echodelta.co. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And as always, if you have questions, suggestions, episode ideas, or just want to reach out and say hi, drop us a line at podcast at echodelta.co. See you next time.